listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps aspiring professionals in film get where they're going faster by dissecting the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives in the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. My name is Kaylee Bailey. I'm a writer-director based in Nashville, Tennessee. You might know me from a viral Harry Potter fan film uh, from last year, and I'm currently working on a script I can't say anything about. Ooh, intriguing. Mm-hmm. Kaylee Bailey, welcome yes. back to the Make It Podcast. Glad to be here. So glad to have you, and... Uh, I want to start by just going a little bit deeper in your bio. I'm going to read your bio back to you and to this audience to start things out. Uh, Kaylee Bailey is a commercial and narrative film director based in Nashville, Tennessee. She has worked in the film industry since she was 14 years old, driven by a passion for authentic storytelling with a background as a first assistant director and a feature film editor, Kelly Kaylee brings not only directing experience, <laughs> but also pre-pro and post-production experience to the table. Commonly dubbed a Swiss Army knife of filmmaking, Kaylee harnesses her extensive knowledge of the filmmaking process to craft powerful and emotive stories. And so with that bio, there's a little bit I want to dig into there. Um, what is your definition of an authentic story or authentic storytelling? Oh, good question. Um, well, I think authenticity is probably different based on who you are. You know, like what's authentic for you is not going to be authentic for me. So I think it is probably um, individually based as well. Um, but I, I guess I would describe authenticity as um, true to your own life experience or true to what true to what you know to be real, I guess. Um, but authentic, I guess, meaning I love, I gravitate towards real stories. I gravitate towards like based on true stories, like those kind of things as well. Um, but human moments, maybe not contrived sort of things. So I, I would consider, I was going to say Tarantino films are not authentic because, but they are. So scratch that from the record. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, I think authenticity is another way to say like your individual experience and putting that on screen in a way that feels real and can strike a chord with people who've had similar experiences. You've done commercials for Mercedes-Benz, Hallmark, New Balance. I have to tell you that all of your commercials make me cry. <laughs> they they do. They're very It's usually emotional. the goal. It's yeah. usually the goal. They're, they're really, really well done. And, um, thank you. Well, I usually say that if you're, if you're doing a 60 second commercial and especially with a lot of the stuff that I made early on, it was like, if I can get people to cry in 60 seconds or less, then I think I, I'm doing my job here. So that has been something that it, it was a challenge for me at the beginning, but I kind of found out like, oh, I've got a knack for it. So great. <laughs> you do have a knack for it and they all have a particular tone to them, a particular pace, a particular speed. Is that 
the authentic uh, is that sort of uh, the the authentic you coming through in those and and if so what or which commercial would you say mirrors your own life the most which which one of those did you take from your own experience the most i think well i think a lot of those pieces and i think you'll find in everything that i do commercial narrative any of it there's always a very strong hook. There's always a very like gut punch, like, ugh, like you kind of like grab your stomach and you're like, oh, that hits me like right in the gut, you know? And that's always my goal. Like if, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about the Harry Potter fan film that we did, but that has the same kind of like hook gut punch feeling in it. And it just come, you know, it's just developed over longer. So it's more impactful because you've got longer than 60 seconds. So it's always my goal to have that moment because I think that's catharsis. Like that moment that you get people to cry. I'm like, people want to feel, they want to be moved. And, you know, like the movies, like, you know, movies, I know it means moving like motion pictures, but I also think like movies, the most like emotion equals movies equals to move, you know? So I want to move people emotionally as well. So. Yes. Uh, success. <laughs> you, you, you did that for sure. Um, the, the Mercedes commercial really jumped out at me uh, personally. And obviously yeah. I know why to me, I, I think I've mentioned it a few times on this podcast that, you know, my dad is the person who drove me to be creative I mean, my mom did too, but my dad is sort of my hero in a way. And so that uh, line in that commercial, um, what was it? Oh, I'll always need you, dad. Mm, yeah. yeah. Hit me right in the heart there. I know. Totally messed me always. up. <laughs> messed me up. Oh, so good at doing that. <laughs> uh, you did mention Neville Longbottom and the Black Witch, which is your mm-hmm. Harry Potter fan base, um, yeah. sort of fan film for um, your love of Harry Potter. Now, here's the <laughs> here's what's interesting. I want to dig into this a little bit. 3.6 million views, just under 10,000 comments on YouTube. It's truly amazing. It is wonderful. You wrote, you directed it. It has uh, my friend, or maybe our mutual friend, Kira Matson in it as well. Mm-hmm. And... It started making me think about what the sort of end run goal of a short is. Mm -hmm. And if you were advising a young filmmaker right now and you needed to maybe have a talk with them about why going straight to YouTube might be a better alternative than taking it on a festival run, Mm -hmm. what would you say to them? Um, well, it's worth mentioning that the Harry Potter fan film worked and got that many views because it was a Harry Potter fan film, um, because there was existing IP. It's an easy, like rabid fan base. Like they will eat up any and all content. And if you give them something that's quality, it's, it's going to get eaten up like to the nth degree, which is what happened with this. And so this was a special case for a short film. I think it's a lot harder. Like if this had just been like a short film that was like a similar sort of story, maybe set in the middle ages or something, 
this would not, it would not have gotten the views that it's got. It's because it's, it has a huge existing fan base in many, many different languages. I think it's been translated to like 27 different languages in the subtitles. So, um, so yeah. So anyway, that, I think that's worth noting as well to kind of like set the scales. Like nobody, you know, I even feel like if I were to make a fan film of, of, or a film similarly, similar length, similar emotional chords, like it still wouldn't be like that popular. Um, so I, I just say that as a little bit of a caveat, but, um, but yeah, I think going straight to YouTube has its benefits for sure, just because you can expose it to a wider base. The thing about festival runs too, is that a lot of times you can't, you can't post it anywhere. If you put it, if you go into festivals, it has to be totally private. So a lot of a filmmaker's work is, the past, the, the most recent job is part of getting more jobs or it's part of getting your next thing funded. And if you can't actually show it, or you can't actually spread it, then, you know, it, it kind of ties your hands in a little bit of a way. And also, I mean, it's cheaper because festival runs, like they cost a lot of money for entry fees and you might not even get selected. And so you kind of, if you're going to do the festival circuit, I think I would recommend like being very, very specific that that's what it's for. And also like researching and watching what films won in previous years, how long were they, what were the beats, what were the story structures that they followed, you know, that kind of stuff. And I was planning on doing a short film this year that was meant to do festival runs. And it was something that I did a lot of research on was like what types of films win, what lengths of films win, because obviously if you're going to YouTube, you can make it as long as you want, as long as it's entertaining and people want to watch it. And there's all kinds of like channels and platforms that if you did a sci-fi short, you can try to get it on like a sci-fi channel that they'll promote your short film and put it on their channel as part of their content. And you know, there's all kinds of ways to work the YouTube online stuff. Um, but I kind of forgot where I was going with that. Oh yeah. There's, there's just a lot of freedom in online platform and YouTube and Vimeo and all of that stuff that you won't get with festivals, but obviously festivals have their appeal. You want, everybody wants the laurel on their short film on their thumbnail. <laughs> so I, I, I know it. And I don't know if it has any value. I think it's an ego thing to some degree, depending yeah. on the festival, it gives you the laurel. So if, if you take your short film to Cannes, that's going to be potentially valuable to your career should you win. Right. Uh, I do believe in taking a short to AFM uh, the way that Lulu Wang did. Mm. That can pay off if you're good at networking and yeah. can get a private room and do that. I think one thing that independent filmmakers don't price in are the externalities. So. Perhaps it costs between $80 and $120 per festival to enter, but how much is it going to cost you to eat for the week while it shows to buy tickets to that festival? If you, if there's an extra cost for that to travel to and from, to uh, hobnob and take people out to network. Like, Oh yeah. It's like a whole experience that you have to be ready for, you know, assuming that you're assuming that your film gets into a festival that you want to attend. Cause some of them, if you enter them, you're like, yeah, I'm not, I don't really know the benefit in that in attending that festival that I entered as like a backup festival to get a laurel, you know, but obviously if you went and you were aiming for South by Southwest or you were aiming for, 
you know, Sundance or whatever, and you get in, like you got to go. <laughs> so, right. And those are some great ones. Exactly. That would also be worthwhile simply for the experience for the, yeah. Um, yeah. Just for the networking alone. Yeah. It's I was going to say just like, there. like not even about your film. Just <laughs> no, because it's like, if you're, if you're at those festivals and you say like, I've got, you know, Oh, what, what do you do here? Cause there's obviously like tons of network people and streaming people. And like, there's just industry people there that they don't have a short in the festival. But if you meet somebody over drinks and then you're like, Oh, what, what are you doing here? Well, I have a, I have a short in the festival. They're like, Oh my God, you know, and then let's go see it. And then, you know, and then you're off to the races. So Exactly. And so if you're not, if you have a short that isn't going to make those festivals and let's say you, you spent between $1,000 and $5,000 to make your short, if not more, then that festival run that doesn't include Sundance, that doesn't include South by Southwest, uh, that still could cost another five grand uh, mm-hmm. if you price in the externalities. And meanwhile, you you put your short on YouTube and got 3.6 million views and got, yeah. and, and, you, and it wasn't just views. You got engagement. And then of course, of course the Harry Potter thing plays in, but that's just smart research on your part. That's just, yeah, that's just your passion meeting and understanding. And I think also you're being a little bit humble <laughs> for people that want to go watch it. It's called Neville Longbottom and the black witch. And you tell me if, Kaylee's being humble. I think this is just a really great looking and well-written short film and the, the Harry Potter thing just layers over the top of it. So kudos to you on that. Um, and I, I appreciate, appreciate that. No, no problem. And, and I appreciate your, your insight and thoughts on that. It's, it's a tough battle. It's like, you know, what are your goals? If, if your goals is, is to get a film out there that's going to get seen, YouTube might sort of usurp the need to go to just any old festival. Right. Uh, that's, that's kind of, that was my thinking behind that. But, but of course that does not include these, let's say the top 10 festivals in the world. Yeah. Those are expensive yeah. you have to go to. Also in your bio, you're, uh, it says you're commonly dubbed as a Swiss army knife of filmmaking. Tell me, uh, is being a Swiss army knife an advantage and how tempted are you mm-hmm. to specialize, at least publicly, like maybe on your website, say I'm sure. only a director, I'm only a director or writer? Well, that that is something that I, as you were reading the bio, I was like, oh, that's maybe like a year or so old. I probably need to change that. <laughs> so <laughs> I, you're, you know, you're, you're right on about that. So I definitely lean towards specialization now because I would brand myself as a writer director, which has its own benefits as being a writer slash director and not just a writer or not just a director. Like there's, there's benefits and advantages to being the combo. Um, and also disadvantages as well. Um, but is, and I think that the Swiss army knife of filmmaking is something I do take a lot of pride in because I have run the gamut as a filmmaker. I've done a lot of different positions and a lot of different departments. If you were to look at, look at my IMDb page, you'd be like, what does this woman want to do? Like you've done a lot of different things. You've been a DIT, you were a camera assistant, you were like a talent PA, like you were a second AD, like what, where were you going to land here? And you were a grip, you were an electrician. Like I've done a ton of stuff that I think has all 
shaped me into the director that I am. And I'm really grateful for that. And so I think that, I think that's an advantage that I also have that whenever I'm on the phone with an agency or production company or producer or anybody, and they ask about my work experience or when I got started in film for me to be able to say, I've done all these things is a benefit to them because then I'm like, so I get it. Like I get the scheduling. I used to AD a lot. So I understand like the constraints of, of the clock. I understand from a group and electrician's perspective, like having a good lunch, like why that's important to them and why they're pissed when it's not, you know, so it makes me a very empathetic director as well, which I think honestly half the battle of being a director is knowing like how to empathize and deal with people. Like that's, that's going to be more of your battle, I think, than having a vision. But I mean, that's, that's aside the point, but all that to say, I think that specialization is important. And especially as I grow in my career, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to AD anymore. And I don't even tell people that I used to do that, except in the context of I came up through assistant directing and now I direct and write, you know, because people are also several agents and managers that I've talked to in LA who've been like, you should definitely, you know, postulate yourself that way because as like a lot of people are looking for crossover filmmakers, people who came from like crossover directors, rather like people who came from being a first assistant director into ADing or into directing because they know that side of things or somebody who used to be a DP and now they're a director or they used to be an actor and now they're a director. Like people want that crossover experience because it's not as tunnel vision as maybe a director who's never done anything else. Um, so anyway, um, that will probably be coming off of my website, but I will lean into the verbiage of I've done a lot of other things. <laughs> so, Who got you into film? How, how did you get started? I know you started young. Mm-hmm. So I, well, as far as like the first opportunity or what made me want the opportunity. Let's start with what made you want it. And then we can kind of go okay. into that next bit. But I'm curious what that moment was for you? Um, so it was Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. And <laughs> I'm totally, I mean, if, if, if people haven't figured this out already, I'm kind of a nerd. Like my dream project is to direct anything Star Wars. So that, you know, I'm like, you know, I used to be a little bit ashamed of how nerdy I am, but now I'm just leaning into it. So <laughs> my, uh, my big quarantine purchase was like a combat lightsaber that me and one of my friends from the Harry Potter fan film were going to like try to practice lightsaber fighting. So super nerdy, my but co-founder, it was, was going to be fun. Uh, Nick Bugs during COVID built a red and one red one, one blue one Star Wars lightsaber. That's by, awesome. By hand, and they're fully That's functional. Amazing. Yeah, and I'll, also, I'll send you pictures. Totally respect it. I'd rather just buy the thing. So good for you. Um, <laughs> good for you, Nick. Um, but anyways, so I used to be a little bit self conscious about that part of me, but now I'm just kind of like, you know what? It is what it is, and if that's what's in me, then it's gonna come out of me, and I'd rather be making something that I would be interested to watch, which is, you know, a star Wars film or a Marvel movie, or I, I love those big, like universe building kind of projects. And if those are the projects that I work on, then like, I'd be a happy camper. So no need to hide our nerdism, like hashtag proud nerd. But, um, so anyway, so I, 
I actually wasn't allowed to watch Lord of the Rings when I was younger. So I come from a very Christian background and my parents were like very anti-witchcraft and there's obviously witchcraft in Lord of the Rings. And I, but two of my friends, two of my best friends were watching them and loving them and telling me all about them. And I was like, I want to watch them anyway. And so I snuck over to my friend Sarah's house and we watched them together. And I just loved the storytelling. I loved the cinematic, like huge world of it and New Zealand and how epic it felt. Like I loved those films. And so when the third one came out, I was 13 and, um, I really wanted to go see it in theaters with my two best friends, but my mom didn't know that I had that I'd watched them. And so I got my friend Sarah's mom to call my mom and tell her that these were these were films that were based on a Christ-like metaphor. So it was okay for me to go see them. (laughs) And so my mom was like convinced. And so, uh, she let me go see Lord of the Rings. So I'm sitting in the theater has been all this anticipation because I'd seen every behind the scenes thing and every like appendices and every hidden thing that you can find on Lord of the Rings. And so I'm like ready for this film. So I, I remember being in the theater And it's the moment when Sam and Frodo are on Mount Doom at the very end. You know, it's the climax of the movie and Frodo's like too weak to carry on. But like the Mount Doom, it's just right there. Like they're on it. They're so close. And Sam picks up Frodo and says, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. Come on. And he like like firemans him on his shoulder and (laughs) takes him up the mountain to like go to Mount Doom to destroy the ring. And I remember sitting there and you're, wasn't my accent great? I mean, I feel it's pretty good. I feel it's pretty great. Yeah. So I remember sitting there and just like tears streaming down my face and I didn't say a word the whole ride home. And I remember thinking if movies can make people feel this way, then that's what I want to do. And I got home and my dad was sitting in his reclining chair and I said, dad, I want to make movies when I grow up. And he said, okay. And that was it. (laughs) So, then wow. it was off to the races and I knew from that moment on that that's what I wanted to do. So I think that that, if you're looking at like, you know, origin stories of like my style and what I put into films, like that kind of hook is what got me in. And so I am very intentional about like any, any, it can be wrapped in anything. It can be wrapped in a sci-fi. It can be wrapped in a drama. It can be wrapped in a historical piece. It can be wrapped in anything, but if it has that hook, then like I can, I can get behind that project, you know? Um, I have two yeah. anecdotal things for you. Right. One is that I use that. First of all, thank you so much for that. Those are amazing films. And I use that movie to test my speakers uh, in any, in every sort of theater space I've ever had, the movie that I use to test whether or not everything sounds good is that film. Mm. So it's good in many ways. And I don't, are you on Twitter? Um, eh, like I have a handle, but I'm never on there. That's okay. As long as you have it and you have an account, because there's a person named Gareth Harney. So G A R E T H. Okay. Yes. This individual has the story behind the story of Lord of the Rings. Hmm. And it started with a Roman gold ring that was found in a field near Slychester in 1785. So if that doesn't pique your curiosity, I don't know what Hmm. will, but I'm just going to leave it at that. You're going to find his account and it'll be a thread and you'll thank me later. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Great. I can't wait. 
it'll be it's it's an incredible incredible story so i want to uh, then go in and, and ask you you mentioned about being an ad i know you've done some wonderful editing in your past you talked a little bit about it you basically answered the question but to go a little bit deeper how has being that swiss army knife being that editor that first ad how has that helped you become a better director um several ways but i think that I really think it does come down to empathy and it, it comes down to knowing what the other person across the table from you is struggling with and what their problems are going to be and being able to put yourself in their shoes. And I usually tell people, you know, young filmmakers or people that haven't gone to college yet, like, ah, oh, you know, I, I, should I major in film? Like I want to go to film school and I want to be a director. I'm like, well then don't go to film school, either drop out and become a PA and just work your way up and just learn or go get your day, go get a degree in psychology because really, and human relations, because really being a director is all about human relations. It's all about people and getting your vision into their heads and also getting them to want to like make that happen because they have their own vision of what it needs to be. And so you've got to get them on your team. And you also in the day to day, like you have to know how to empathize with somebody else's struggles on set. Like that's going to come up every single day. Every like moment of the day is going to be filled with like, I have to understand where this person is coming from because they're upset or they're like, they're not understanding what I'm saying. Like, how do I phrase what I'm saying in such a way that they'll understand? And I think that is a little bit of a different, that is just like industry knowledge. So I think that that goes in a different bucket, but number one, I would just say is like the ability to step into a lot of different crew members shoes. I obviously have not done every single position, but to be able to, you know, to be able to, to campaign for, like a second meal when we're going over time, because I'm like grip and electric have been carting around these huge lights all day. Like they're starving. These are guys like they, they need fuel to do their job. So if you feed them well, they'll be happy. Mm -hmm. And so just stuff like simple stuff like that, that I'm surprised at the amount of producers or directors that don't recognize that, that think it's just like, okay to give, you know, a cold lunch on a really long day or, or whatever. So, um, so empathy is the number one thing, just being able to step into many crew positions, shoes and being able to communicate with them in that way. But then the second thing I guess is just the lingo and the understanding and the knowledge that you glean from that, because like I, I have picked up things from being a grip and electric that make me a better director because I can talk to them and I can communicate my idea a little bit more clearly. I can say like, Hey, we're a little bit strong on this. Like, can we put an opal in there and just soften it up a little bit? And you know, that's maybe crossing the line a little into like, you're now doing the DP's job, mm -hmm. <laughs> but you can, you can talk in a way that they're like, Oh, you're, you understand, like you're, you're not just like somebody that doesn't get what, what the tools of our trade are. And so I think that that's helpful as well. Just knowing the tools of every different like category and position and filmmaking, because when I sit down with an editor, I can speak to them in a language that they understand. And when I'm talking to a DP, I can speak to them in a language that they're going to understand and same with the ADs and certainly not as much like, hair and makeup, like that world, I don't understand, <laughs> but like, 
you know, I, I think that that being able to speak in a common tongue is very, very valuable because it all adds to getting what you envision in your head onto the screen. And that's all about communication. And that is all about understanding the language of the other person and the tools of their trade. So I think it's mostly those two things. That's wonderful. Appreciate that. 2020 has been a tough year for a lot of people, but the good news is that you got a pretty big win earlier this year, along with friend of the podcast, Alan Powell and mm-hmm. Netflix has uh, purchased a week away your faith-based musical film. Uh, talking with Alan about this and uh, knowing a little bit about you, you guys have been working on this a long time. Alan actually approached me about this script in 2016, I believe 2016, 2017, we had lunch, we talked about it. And at the time we didn't have anything going. So we just had kept an eye on it, kept, you know, kept it on our radar and kept following it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we never approached it, which is just the, just what happens. But it's interesting because we know, you know, he used to be in Anthem lights and he grew up in the church. His dad's a pastor you grew up the same way you guys have these again, authentic experiences. So I'm curious right now, what role does religion play in your life today? If any, Hmm. Well, that took a turn. I wasn't really expecting. So that's good. Um, I religion is a little bit sticky for me personally, just because, um, you know, I grew up gay in the Southern Baptist church. Like that's a kind of a, a big hurdle to overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm grateful for that experience. I'm grateful that I did grow up in the church because I, I do think it shaped me into the person that I am and I wouldn't be who I am without that guidance. And, and I, I definitely don't think, I don't think that Christianity is bad. I don't think that any of that is, um, detrimental. I think in some forms it certainly is, but, I'm grateful because it taught me like the morals that I still carry today. And it also brought a lot of pain (laughs) into my life as well. Um, but I, I don't really hold on to religion anymore. I think it's kind of like a, I respect people who that is still a very important part of their life. And it is for many of my friends and certainly probably all of my family members, Um, but it's just something that I think I still approach with like a little bit of pain and, and, and a twinge of resentment truthfully, but that's something that I'm trying to learn to let go of and be, you know, gracious. And cause it's like, I, I understand where all these people are coming from who say whatever all the church people say about the LGBT community. I get it. Cause I'm like, I, I come from the church, so I'm not, you know, ignorant of why Christians believe what they believe, but I, you know, obviously I'm not in that same boat anymore. So, um, all this to say, it's a very complicated relationship that I have with the church, but, um, but Alan and I were able to write the script the way that we wrote it because of the experiences that we had and because we understood that audience. So, you know, I, I think it, it's all, you know, it all adds up to something in, in the grand scheme of your career, you know, all of your experiences do. Yeah. Thank you. 
Kaylee, for that. Thank you so much. And you know, I used to work for a church called uh, Living Word, and I was part of their record, record label there and allowed me to see the business of the church. And I think that was when I decided uh, there's mm. a difference between religion and faith. Yeah. Uh, the, the film itself is so niche and so smart. It's this convergence of something we, you know, that's, that has a built-in audience, like a faith-based film, and then has something we all love, which is singing and music and the rejoicing in that. It was such a smart decision. And on this one, you're a co-writer, you're not a director, but I'm curious if you got a chance to learn anything from Roman White who did direct it. Is there anything that you learned about directing that you, anything you gleaned if you, if you got a chance to be a mm. part of that? Um, so I was only on set for like a week and the weird thing about being a writer on a film is that you show up and you don't have anything to do. <laughs> like everybody is doing something and you're the only person just standing there. Yes. <laughs> and so it felt really weird because I was like, you know, and especially coming from an AD background, I'm used to being the person that has like arguably some of the most responsibility. And so to come onto a set and be like, I literally have nothing to do here except watch. So there was a freedom in that too. Cause I was like, whew, so glad I'm not in charge of this. Like this is a lot that's going on. Um, but because of work schedules and other projects, I was only able to be on for a week to like come by and, and see it all, uh, which was super exciting to, you know, show up on day one and be like, Oh my gosh, this is so crazy. Like this is what we wrote four years ago and there it is on screen. Um, and that's a very surreal and moving experience. Cause you're like, you work so hard to get to that moment where you see, lines of dialogue that you wrote being delivered by actors. And, you know, I think for Alan, probably more so than me, because he had this dream for many years before that. So, um, That's right. so he, yeah, so he, you know, has lived with it for a very long time. So I'm sure that that was a very satisfying experience for him. But, um, but Roman brought a lot of the, like the, the scale of the thing and the musical numbers and the choreography of like, how to make something look really cool on screen in like a musical is very different, you know, from, from just like shooting narrative, you know, it's like, it's just bigger and grander and it needs a certain hand and a certain style. And that's not really, you know, that's obviously not my forte because I don't do musicals and I've done a handful of music videos, but they are narrative based musicals and or narrative based music videos. It's a small scale um, so all that to say, I think he brought that to the table, which I was very, very impressed with. Um, but I, I think I was not on set enough to really like glean a whole lot from his directing style. And also, cause I was like going to visit all my friends and talking to everybody while they were working. So, um, is this still so, yeah. on track to come out, uh, summer this year or is it pushed a little bit because of COVID? Uh, I think it got pushed because of COVID. So I think it will be next summer. Okay. Next summer, we are going to look out for it. We're all going to watch it. We're all going to cheer and we're all going to yeah. lift you up on our shoulders. Right. It'll uh, be great. I, I think I'd be doing a disservice to you as a um, supporter of LGBTQ perspectives if we didn't talk about the filmmaking side and we only talked about this sort of religion side of it. So to mm. to to dig into that and, and, you know, do what's sort of right by you in the audience. I think we should 
look at that a little bit and, and, because you are unique. You're doing this in the South, in the Bible Belt. Mm-hmm. Has there been any wonderful surprises uh, in in maintaining that in that bravery and that strength and, and being out front with your um, you know with your perspective and, and with your position in the community? And has there been obstacles? So I'm, I'm curious about the, the good surprises or bad, I suppose, but also obstacles that you've had to face personally being sort of, I would say, very unique in, in, in the South and, and very brave as well. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, I think, well, wonderful things is that it's, it's nice that it seems like it's the time for me. And I think had I come out years and years ago, or had I, you know, been born in a different generation, the opportunities wouldn't be the same. And, um, and there really is a push for diversity that we've never seen before. And, you know, the hope is that it's not just a wave that, you know, comes and goes and it passes and then everything's back to like, you know, white guys running the show Um, you know, you hope that that's not the case, but there are certain, there are certain either programs or certain benefits or certain, certain ways that I think you're right that you, if you say I'm an LGBT filmmaker from the South, people are like, Oh, Whoa, well, that's different. And that gives you a little bit of an advantage to stick out above like, you know, the thousands of other people that they've met with that that year or the people that they email or the people they interview or the people, those producers are talking to, like it, it does give you a certain edge because you do have a very unique life experience. And so I'm grateful for that for sure. Um, I, I'm trying to think like wonderful surprises. Um, yeah, I would say that that would be probably the main thing is like, coming out and feeling like my career was going to suffer because of it and finding that that was not true. Um, it was a very pleasant surprise. However, I have not been hired on something because I was gay. And that I think was like a reality that I, you know, you always fear that that's going to be the case, but it did happen. And, and it, it was the same kind of reaction of like, Oh, I thought that this would be more damaging to my career. And it wasn't. So that's good. Um, but, but yeah, so I think that the obstacles are, are mainly just internalized or obstacles that I perceive. And, um, and that's like, you know, most of the contacts that I have, or you assume that most contacts that you have in the South probably have some sort of Christian background, or they are connected to some sort of church or like, you kind of always feel like you're, how much do I reveal about myself? How much do I say? Um, you have to kind of get a feel for people. If, if you kind of have that, like, Oh, I think that they're Christians. Cause there is, if, if you're a very, um, what's the word intuitive person. I think that you can feel, and especially if you grew up in the church, like you can definitely feel when somebody is a Christian, there's just, there's just an aura for lack of a better word. You just know, like there's like either a sheen. I mean, you get it. Like you're like, I know what you mean. Like there's just a sheen. Like you can just feel it. It's like a force field. And so, 
Yeah, there, there it's, I don't know what it is, but it's just there. And so whenever I feel it, I'm like, huh, like I want, like how progressive are you? Like, what do you think about gay people? And, and so, and it's not something like I, I don't like bringing that into any sort of business. And I kind of hate that that's like, that I even have to talk about it. Like I, I definitely look forward to the day that I'm on a podcast and we're talking about me being a gay filmmaker or it, I actually look forward to the day that's not even part of the conversation. It's just like, I'm a filmmaker and that's it. Like I, I'm ready for it to not be a qualifier and granted, like, it's like, that's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of these conversations. It's going to take a lot of, it's going to take a lot of effort from here on out, but I'm excited for the day that, you know, the next generation of female filmmakers, like they don't have to be female filmmakers. They're just filmmakers. That's right. I think, um, um, I, I think we're, so we're moving there. We're getting yeah, there. That's what I was going to say. I, I'm not, it's not that it's progress or regression. It's that change is happening and I yeah. think we're changing for the better. I, you know, I, yeah. I, I had a college roommate that was, uh, that is Indian and very smart, uh, great school and could not get an interview. And he, changed his name to Ethan Mm. and then he got all the interviews. So it's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's not paranoia. Sometimes, sometimes it's just people's, um, built in, you know, it it was one of the way we explained it at the time. This is 20 years ago. My goodness. Um, they said, well, you know, people don't want to work with the guy that you are. They want to work with Ethan. Mm. It's, it's easier it's not a, it's not even, you know, that they dislike you. They don't know you. It's just that yeah. it's lazy. It's easier yeah. to be lazy. And I totally. think that's what it is. Like, you know, I don't want to have to get to know this Indian guy, but I'll, if I, Ethan, okay. I know Ethan a little bit, even if I don't know him, you see what I mean? Yeah. And that's, that's what that, that's what that is. Um, you mentioned that a week away was Alan's thing. You co-wrote it with Alan. You guys were writers on the set and um, understood it. One thing he talked to me about was that he, you both understood this life and, 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 mm. and so it was easy to get in the room together and work. But I'm curious if you were on a panel, let's say at a film festival and you were asked to give the pros and cons of co-writing, what would you say? Um, well, the pros, I think for me, I think outweigh the cons, but the, the pros are that like, you do get to talk through it every day. And that's a benefit that you as a screenwriter, that you're just doing it by yourself. You're creating it in so much isolation that you you sometimes can't tell which way is up or down because you're like, I have no point of reference for if this is a good idea or a bad idea. Like if this scene makes sense, you probably haven't heard it read out loud. And, um, and what was great about co-writing Alan and what has been great in co-writing and other co-writes that I've had is just, you, you get to talk it through every day and, And that's a huge part of the writing process is feedback and for, for better, for worse, like some, some feedback is terrible, but if you're in the room every day and you're just wrestling through scenes, um, 
that's really helpful, especially if you can kind of get a bead on, on different characters. So Alan would like, Alan knew a certain set of characters. Like he just got them and I just understood a different set of characters. And so we would talk through the scenes in accents and voices and we would like act them out as we go. Like, Oh, what if, Oh, Oh, Oh. And I, and Kristen would say this and, you know, and we would kind of act out those scenes as those characters. And uh, certainly you can do that by yourself. (laughs) And I know Mm -hmm. Aaron Sorkin does that by himself. And so I'm like, you can, it just, do you live alone? Do you have a space to do that? <laughs> you know, but yeah, I, I think one of the main benefits for me in co-writing is just being able to talk through it. Cause I'm also a verbal processor. And so, um, and I think Alan is, is as well. So we would end up talking ourselves out of a problem because we would fix it in the conversation. So that was, a, that was a huge benefit and just you know, the energy that you can feed off of from somebody else. If like, you're not having a great day and they come in and they're super energized, super excited. Then it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I'm having a great day. <laughs> and so it's like, which also vice versa. Cause so you have to balance that. So that can be a pro or a con depending on what mood you're in. Um, so yeah, so that, that's also, you know, both of those things are huge benefits, but, and then cons is obviously like, if you, don't have the same vision for the script. And if, if you're on different pages and if you're not willing to collaborate or, and, and I feel like generally somebody takes the lead on it. I, you know, I did a co-write where I was kind of like, it was my idea and I kind of was able to steer the ship and somebody has veto power and it was Alan, you know, for church camp or it used to be called church camp, but a week away. And which was great because it was like, if we got to a point where there was a fork in the road and we were divided on something, we could just trust that like, Alan, this is your vision. Let's do what you think is best. And that's helpful because if you're just like both, you know, fighting it out, you might never get to a resolution. Um, So I just, I feel like there's a benefit in being a little, like having somebody be the leader on a co-write for sure. Somebody understanding the story a little bit better and somebody being the person that can guide you when things are like sticky or you're not sure which direction to take the story. Um, so, so yeah, I think having a different vision than the other person and neither of you wanting to balk on your specific vision, I think that's where co-writes can fall apart. Um, co-writes also can end up being, um, you have to be careful and you have to set, I think, boundaries for the time that you spend on it. Cause it's very easy, especially for someone like me, who I like to have control of <laughs> the project. Like I like to be the one that is at the computer screenwriting because I want to know what's going on the page. I want to know that it's written well. I want to like, I want to be in control of that. And so I tend to take on more work um, just by nature. And so I think that you do have to be very cognizant to not let that resentment build. If you're going to be the person that has the computer and that's what you do, then you have to be like, okay, I chose to do that. And that naturally means I'm probably going to work more. If you decide like one person's going to write, the Uh, other person's going to speak versus doing something on like writer duet where 
you both have screens and you're both writing, which even still is tough for me because I'm like, no, 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 no. Like you're messing up my work. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. And just um, to be clear for the audience, Writer Duet is a software, cloud-based software script writing program, uh, very uh, similar to Celtics. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So anyways, I think just the balance of the work as well. And to not, if you're the person that likes to be in control of the computer, to not take on more than you should or build any sort of resentment that you're the person that is doing the typing, you know, because it's like you are doing the typing, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing all the writing because you're not just typing it versus writing it. Those are different things, um, which sounds like they shouldn't be different things, but they are. It's like the, the writing equals like the speaking and the dialogue that you're working out versus like putting it on the page. So, um, so yeah, I think that those are, those are some of the big things that I would call out. Right. It seems the cons live in the, in the gray area of mm-hmm. uh, co-writing. That yeah. was, that's awesome. You know, you've been so wonderful by the way, Kaylee, and so oh, open and, and honest and, and fun. Uh, I only have a couple more questions. Are we good on time? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Uh, you mentioned Aaron Sorkin. I'm curious what creatives do you most admire and want to emulate and what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that makes Mm -hmm. them stand apart? So obviously Aaron Sorkin, and I would assume Alan Powell probably talked about Aaron Sorkin too, because we both love him, (laughs) but um, yeah. And he is a huge inspiration for all screenwriters, all filmmakers. I feel like most people that I know have, listen to his masterclass or listen to a talk that he's given or read one of his scripts or seen some of his films or, or whatever. Like he's just the, like the man, you know, um, but his masterclass, which I'm, I'm sure that that will be something that's like, what resources would you want to recommend for the audience? Well, I'll just go ahead and say Aaron Sorkin's masterclass is one of the best things that I've ever listened to. And wow. it's great. And, and I think like I, and I've also talked to somebody who was like, I didn't get anything out of it. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I think it just depends on what type of person you are. And I, he's so lovable too. Cause he's so like humble and, you know, and kind of like dorky and nerdy, but he's got so much wisdom and he, you know, it's like, do you understand who you are? You know, and you kind of get the sense that he doesn't know, but, um, which is, I think very endearing. Um, but one of the things that I pulled from his masterclass that is something I will take with me until I die as a screenwriter is he, he's in his talk and he's talking about when you are, when you're writing your first draft and the first draft is, is really difficult as a writer. If you've never written a screenplay, you've never sat down to do a full length 120 plus page thing. It is really tough to get that first draft out for, for whatever reason. Like you wouldn't think that it would be, but it's so hard and it mostly, yeah, most, yeah, mostly just because I think for me, it's perfectionism and wanting it to be perfect when you put it on the page and it's not, did you rewrite act one? You can't get to the end of it. Right. And so something that Aaron Sorgan said that kind of helped me push past that tendency to just like linger on a scene for way too long. Um, was he, he was like, you know, if you akin, if you akin writing to sculpting, you don't even have your marble slab until you have your first draft. Like the blank page is not your marble slab. 
your first draft is your marble slab. Once you get your first draft in, it is just this big giant block of marble. And then you can start chipping away at everything that's not the statue. And, and that I felt was very profound and very freeing for me because I put so much pressure on how that first draft turned out and to be like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not making the sculpture when I'm writing the first draft. I'm just getting all the blocks put on top of each other and glued together. And then I can start chipping away at everything that's not the sculpture or everything that's not sculpture. Um, so I think that that was really, really helpful for me. And I think about that probably every day. (laughs) And so, um, so it might not be as profound to anybody else, but if you're the type of person that you are the only thing getting in your own way when you write, like I am, then it's just really freeing to be like, Oh, my first draft can suck because it's not supposed to be anything. Oh, and this was another quote that I loved. Um, I think this was Shonda, uh, Shonda rhymes, but she said, um, every first draft is perfect because the only thing a first draft has to do is exist. And yeah. And I thought that that was incredibly profound too, because it was like, you're right. It just has to exist. And then you can, it can get better and it, it doesn't have to be anything. It just has to be a first draft. So, so anyway, that has been very helpful in, um, in the screenwriting process for me, at least. Speaking of profound profundity, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering what are the two best pieces of advice you've received in your career so far and who did they come from? Mm. Well, I honestly would have put that Aaron Sorkin thing probably at number one. So, um, so that was probably, but, but are there, but are there pieces of advice like, you've received directly from mm, people you've worked directly. from directly or people supporting you along your journey? Hmm. Oh, I'm trying to think. Or on set. Well, on set, and this might seem like kind of a small thing, but it goes back to um, what I was talking about with food, which again, you might think that that's a small thing until you're working on a set and it's not a small thing. Food is very important on a set. But um, one thing that I was working with a group in electric and they were talking about productions and they were talking about the different levels of production and working on working on things that weren't paying them very well or passion projects or whatever it is. And they were like, and I was ADing and I was just asking them for advice or, or, you know, what would make a production better? What would make somebody a better producer, better creative? And they were like, you know, we, as gripping electricians and as the people that are hauling the gear around, our bodies are machines. They have to be taken care of. And if you don't feed us well, our bodies cannot perform the job that you want them to do. And we will not give you our best work. So if you want the best work out of somebody, if you're not paying, especially if you're not paying them what they're worth, but a crew will work their ass off for you if you feed them really well. And that is absolutely true. And I've seen that over and over and over again, if a production doesn't have very much money, but they have bomb ass catering, like those crew members will go above and beyond. And you would never know that they weren't getting paid the rate that they deserve, which, you know, that's obviously not okay. But if they agree to work for a rate that's lower 
and you can somehow meet them in the middle and provide really good catering and crafty, like they'll work really, really hard for you. And they will anyway. But I think that that's, that's a small way that it's like, you can take care of your crew that way. And it's something that if you've never worked a crew position before, you don't really understand what it, what that's like, (laughs) you know, to sit down and be like, we're having sandwiches again, or we're having salad again, or, you know, we're not having anything hot. Like it's just small things like that, that I think show a crew that you're willing to take care of them, you know, happy belly, happy workers. (laughs) And so that's like a small thing that I've taken that is actually a larger thing that, um, I think it is more about the importance of making sure that your crew is taken care of. I agree. I've seen it work on both. I've seen it work both ways. I saw a film that didn't have great food and a film that did. And the difference is, is night and day. And it plays out because when that crew goes to rate your film in post, they may not rate it a 10. <laughs> and you would expect them to, or they may not proliferate your film the way they ought to and network on your behalf the way they ought to for a film they oh, worked yeah. on simply because they have sort of an ongoing beef with, with the uh, producers that didn't, didn't, yeah, didn't, that didn't. And, and also, you know, Nick always says, my co-founder Nick always says, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. So chances mm. are if the crafting wasn't good, then the way you, treat them might not be good. The way you do everything might not be up to some yeah. standards. So it's a, it's a great piece of advice. And I think one that really has been shared maybe only one other time on this podcast and needs to be repeated. So yeah. thank you so much for that. And yeah. Kaylee, you've been so wonderful. This has been so much fun. Uh, can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media and where they can see your work on the internet? Uh, so my Instagram handle is at where is Kaylee Bailey. Kaylee is spelled K-A-L-I. Um, and that's really the only form of social media that is public or that I really use. Um, work-wise, you'll see my website is linked there. That has all of my work on it. And then if you want to watch the Harry Potter fan film, really you can just Google or you can either Google or just YouTube Neville Longbottom and it'll be the, one of the first thing that pops up. So That's right. So website is k-a-l-i-b-a-i-l-e-y.com instagram uh she gave it to you there uh there's also another site that hosts where if you like click on the the square it takes you to the youtube of of neville Mm -hmm. and i think that's 129 films so uh i don't know if you're actually even part of that or affiliated with that but that is up on that site too so you can find it a couple different places also check yeah. Kaylee out on IMDb as well and all across the internet. Do watch her work. She is super talented. She is on the mm-hmm. rise and you will hear more from her going forward for sure. Uh, last, last question for you as we, as we wrap up, you have a tattoo of a wave and a tattoo of mountains <laughs> on your arms. Wow. Tell me- <laughs> Talk Where to did me. you get that information from? <laughs> like, did I give you that? I don't remember. Maybe you just said it. Oh, our, our crack research team here. Wow, that's, no that's amazing. I have I have four pages of notes on you that I'll share with you one day. But wow, uh, <laughs> that's incredible. I hope that grows a lot. Um, okay, so the tattoos. Um, one, I <laughs> I had a friend who was like, 
every white person I know has that wave tattoo somewhere. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> that is true. And I was like, womp, womp. I thought it was a lot cooler than that. But I was like, okay, to be fair, mine I got in Amsterdam. So that mm-hmm. makes it cooler. You know, we had just gotten off of like, it was me and my best friend were doing a trip through Europe and we were in Amsterdam. It was amazing. And we had just gotten off one of those canal tours and stuff and we were walking around and we'd always talked about getting a tattoo together. And she was like, there's a tattoo parlor right there. Let's just go in. Let's just go in and get a tattoo. And I was like, well, when in Amsterdam. And so we just went in and got tattoos. And so I had previously gotten uh, the mountains tattoo, um, with her for my birthday several years before. So that was my first tattoo. And she had always talked about wanting to get me one. And so she got me that gifted me a tattoo for my birthday, which does it, what does it represent for you? So, um, simplicity, um, like minimalism, because I, my life is very like I design wise, like minimalism. I don't like things to be cluttered. I don't like owning too much stuff. I just like things to be simple. Um, and then I'm pretty outdoorsy. The mountains are like where I clear my head and where I go to think, like I'm very inspired by being in the outdoors. So they have been very important to me as a creative as well. Um, and then upside down to me, there's a W in it, which stands for wonder. Mm -hmm. And, um, there's a quote from George Lucas that I love, which is never lose your childlike sense of wonder. And that just reminds me a little bit to sometimes stop and be like, we take our careers very, very seriously, but we need to remember, like we got into it because we were kids that wanted to tell stories and make movies. And so that helps remind me of that. And then, uh, my friend Alexis jokes that there's a little bit of an A looking shape in there. And she's like, and that stands for me. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, so five things, but, um, yeah, so those are the five. And the wave, what does that mean? In a similar fashion that it is, um, simple and sleek and minimal, but, um, balance between the two of these, because we've got like the land and then, the the ocean. So the earth and the ocean and just the balance between those two things. And that's something that I strive for in my life as a person is achieving balance in all situations. And so, um, just trying to find like the middle ground, um, and that, that sweet spot, if that's either ideals or hardline attitudes or whatever it may be that you're able to find, work-life balance or an ideological balance or that you're able to kind of step in and be comfortable in the gray. And so that's kind of between the two of those, that's, I think what they represent. So. Well, I think they both are minimalistic and both beautiful and uh, as beautiful as you are. So I, uh-huh. I, I, I can't thank you enough for joining me on this podcast and having this wonderful conversation with me. I wish you the best of luck, so much prosperity second half of 2020 I think is going to be great and truthfully it's up to each of us to make sure that's the case anyway so Kaylee I'll talk to you soon and uh, hopefully see each other soon on the outside when the time is right (laughs) awesome well thank you so much Christopher I appreciate it All right. talk soon alright bye bye you've been listening to the make it podcast to find more information about this week's topics including links to relevant blog posts projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, 
You can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.